You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. Just laughing at myself because not sure why I took that um, note higher today, but I did. <laughs> On this podcast, I love having conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me, getting deeper into the journey of their life. So yeah, we talk about their most recent thing, but I dig in a little bit deeper. My hope is with that, that it'll help you to get out of your own way, to embrace yourself, your journey, and more. In today's episode, I have Samantha Durbin. She has a new book out called Raver Girl, Coming of Age in the 90s. I went to some raves back in my my early, my early, uh, well, I guess my late teen years. Um, I was going to say like my early life. I don't know. My childhood. <laughs> oh, I'm 40 now looking back at being like 17. That feels like that is childhood still. Anyway, um, so we get into, you know, what inspired her to write this book now? What happened? You know, the hook, the book is about that time in her life. But, you know, we do talk about like, how did she fall into that world? How did she get out? Where did she go from there? What has she been doing since then? And again, like I said, what inspired to write this book now? So listen in, go check out the book. Good read. I love reading real stories, memoirs. I think it's awesome, you know, and not just of like people we already know. Like it's cool to, you know, read, oh, so-and-so famous, blah, blah, blah. Let me read theirs. But I really love memoirs by people that I don't know. And I'm like, whoa, wow. Just how interesting as humans, our lives are and all the things that can happen and how we get through them. So obviously I love people's stories, which is why we're here. All right. So Go ahead, please subscribe, listen, and let me know what you think. Okay, so I always start the conversations with asking people about what they, when they're growing up and especially their high school experience. So I love that your book starts in the high school experience because most people are like, oh, high school. <laughs> so even though your book starts there, I want to hear, and you can go even before, like, yeah, like what was life like for you growing up? But I always ask about high school years because I feel like it's such a challenging time of like trying to fit in, but stand out. And what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? Yeah. Yeah. So before I became rave or girl and I went to my first rave when I was 16, uh, I would say, well, let's start at like the beginning of what I can remember. Um, so I grew up in Oakland and I had two older brothers and two parents and um we had a very lovely it was you know very 80s um childhood we had cats and the dog and um we had a swimming pool which was rare for Oakland not for California but Oakland's actually not as warm as you know a lot of people realize that um California generally is and yeah we had a pool so my earliest memories are playing in the pool with my brothers and my dad. And I was actually a swimmer, like a competitive swimmer. And so my main sports were swimming and dancing. And then, so yeah, it's a very kind of like sweet. My dad was a tech entrepreneur. So he was kind of nerdy, you know, um, even though technology is like, 
cool now. <laughs> but right, back then, that seems like early like now. It like, like It was pretty nerdy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not that I'm sure people can still do that now, but now it's like, cool, like, oh, tech world. Oh, you built like whatever. (laughs) It's like cool. Yeah. It's like cool nerds. Uh, So he was kind of nerdy and um, but, you know, he's an entrepreneur. So he was uh, very smart and um, forward thinking and he traveled a lot for work. I remember. Um, And then he was always home on the weekends and would take us to our swim meets and one of my brothers is two two years older, and then my other brother is eight years older. So I was a lot closer to the brother. I was two years, two years difference, and you know went to summer camp and um, had you know good friends. And so I didn't really start to <laughs> run into any struggles until about adolescence. Um, you know, I think that's when. The hormones kick in and the boys kick in. And, um, you know, up until then, um, I had always been into music. It kind of goes with like the dancing. And my dad used to play like vinyl around the house. And so I was listening to, you know, the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and like all those great 60s bands. So I really loved music. Um, that was always kind of um, in MTV, of course, growing up with MTV. So that was like... Like the heyday of MTV. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Music videos. And they, played, and they actually played videos and, you know, George Michael's videos in the early 90s, like a lot of supermodels. It was just the coolest. And But I did, I think my parents, my parents probably should have known they had trouble coming their way when my favorite band was Guns N' Roses when I was like 10. <laughs> Um, you know, my friends were still listening to like New Kids on the Block and I had kind of moved on to this other band. <laughs> Did that influence come from your brother or do you know? Um, I think actually a lot of my other influences came from my brothers, like my older brother, older, older brother. He was really into like Depeche Mode and Morrissey and stuff like that. So I was, I was interested in that and liked that because he did and I thought he was the coolest um but the Guns N' Roses was my first band that I found on my own and I was probably through MTV and I just had a massive crush on Axl Rose and like just it was you know it was all like so energetic and like I was so angsty I was starting to get really angsty and so I just really I really enjoyed it and I was like really enjoyed rocking out to it. And um yeah, I just really had a big crush on Axel Rose. <laughs> so um so and and so actually it there's a chapter in the book reflecting on um when I went and saw Guns N' Roses live when I was eleven and I begged my dad to go to this concert in Oakland called Day on the Green, um, which was Guns N' Roses and Metallica. <laughs> and um body count um which was like ice tea's rock band at the time and um it was at the Oakland Coliseum it was like a really big deal and my dad was like yeah you can go but we're coming too and so it was like you know the classic like you know parents taking kid to their first concert and was it my just dad, you and your parents or like and did my you have brother a friend? and okay. my brother who was two years older and my brother got to bring a friend and I brought a friend okay so, yeah and they weren't like, you have to sit with us the whole time. So like they went up and, you know, found their seats up in the 
way up, up <laughs> rafters. We wanted to be down where the action was, right? And, and they actually let us. And they were like, okay, we just want you to come check in every hour with us. And so we did our, we did our best to do that. And they were like, and stay with your brother. So um, event, we essentially couldn't check in. Once like the action really started happening, we were like stuck in the pit, you know? And right. We like actually couldn't come up for air. <laughs> we were like stuck. But by then, you know, it was all good. We found them at the end and it was fine. But um, yeah, so it was, I don't want to like blame Guns and Roses for <laughs> like early rebellion, but if it wasn't Guns and Roses, it would have been something else. I'm sure. <laughs> it like definitely lit a fire for me. And, um, and then, yeah, adolescence was interesting. I, you know, I was kind of an early bloomer in a lot of ways. I like feel like my hips grew, like grew early. Um, I was really tall. I was like the tallest girl in the class usually. And I had these older brothers. So I had some like kind of older influences. Plus, I feel like I matured physically um, kind of early. So... Um, Were you getting like attention from boys that way? Or were you more like, was it you being aware of it and like, oh, like trying to hide it? Or were like, oh, were you getting attention, you know, and not, and sort of like, oh, okay, or not welcome? Or was it more just like you noticing? Yeah, I think it was more me noticing early because I actually, I read fashion magazines from an early age. So like, you know, I had this like idolized not very healthy image of what I wanted to look like. No, same. The George, I was actually just referencing George models or George Michael, those music videos like yesterday in a group coaching call, like that. I was like, yeah, I grew up like, that's what I'm supposed to like. Yeah. I want to look like them, like that. That's what we should look like. <laughs> yeah. And like, um, the Victoria's Secret catalogs, you know, I would like read those and be like, oh my God, this is what I'm going to look like when I'm, I'm older. <laughs> so yeah, so I was aware when my body did start to go in that direction. But boys, no, I mean, in junior high, I had, a, you know, lots of friend, like friends and um, we were very social and uh, the boys were, cause you know, I feel like the boys are not as mature. And so like the boys were immature in the way the boys are. Um, but I, I was quite shy, actually. I didn't, whenever there was like an inst an instance with a boy or an opportunity, I got really shy. So I don't think it was so much because of my physical, um, what was going on physically, but I think it was just more my personality. I actually was kind of shy and didn't really like attention like that. Even though then me and my girlfriends would like, you know, have our crushes and, um, I think that really started to change when I started high school. Um, I think by, you know, 15, you know, you start high school and then you see these older guys, right? So I started to see the older boys and was like, oh, okay, like that's more my speed. And um, me and a girlfriend from Berkeley, we used to go hang out on Telegraph Avenue which um, is still there. And it was this like really cool street um, right by the UC Berkeley campus. And they had like street vendors and like tie dye vendors and, you know, smoke shops and vintage stores. And so it was actually like very nineties alternative. 
And so we used to go hang out at this store called Extra Large, which was um, a shop, a brand that um, the Beastie Boys were behind. And we were like obsessed with the Beastie Boys. And so we would go to Extra Large and hang out. It was like a sofa and they had like music. And so we would go and like hang out there and like smoke our clothes cigarettes and like think we were really cool. And we would be like crushing on the guys who worked there. And they were like skater boys, like 18 year old skater boys. So um, yeah, I was definitely into the older boys early on. So yeah, so my my tastes were older, I guess you could say sophisticated for that age. I didn't really realize it. And so how did, yeah, so you went to your first concert at 11 being Guns N' Roses. And then- my first concert was actually New Kids on the Block. Oh. <laughs> it was like eight. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so when did you start to get into going to raves and how did that, like, was that just like, uh, you know, a friend telling you about it, inviting you or like? Yeah, it was, um, it was very organic. Um, so sophomore year rolled around and the crush that I had freshman year, who I totally thought was unattainable. He didn't have a girlfriend anymore. I had heard. So, you know, you come back from summer vacation and sophomore year, you know, you're like another year cooler. Um, and I found out he didn't have a girlfriend and, um, somehow that happened. And like, I got his attention and started dating and he was a senior. He was like, um, the quarterback, but he was also like kind of cool, like stoner guy. And, you know, I was like, whoa, okay. Um, and so he actually told me about raves and I had a girlfriend in my class who had been to a couple. So like there were rumblings about these like rave parties. And up until then I was like, you know, I'd go to keggers and I was social. Like I would go to keggers. I was not like a book. (laughs) I was not a bookworm. Right. So you would, yeah, be previous to this you're like going out oh okay there's a party here like okay i'll have a drink like yes yeah like i was drinking i was smoking weed already um and my older brother (laughs) he he, uh he turned me on to that because he just kind of knew there's um the part in the book where it's kind of the classic older brother initiating me into the world of weed and smoking me out for the first time and so he was like, you know, you're probably going to get into this sooner or later. And I'd rather have your first time be with me. And so he like kind of took me under his wing and got me stoned for the first time. And that was a uh, fresh, that was freshman year or earlier. That was when I was, I think 13. So yeah, so I'd already kind of been, you know, was kind of already getting into that stuff. Um, Do you feel like because of having the older brothers and especially the one that was closer to you that then is sort of that, like, did you feel like that gave you any more sort of like self-assurance or like self-confidence than to like be out at parties or like, you know, maybe then we did see people smoking weed. It was like, Oh, I know what this is. Yeah. Yeah, it did. I mean, he, my older brothers were also, they were, well, my oldest brother was like, he was so cool. Um, he like had cool hair. He had like Luke Perry hair, you know, like that cool hair. And he had cool clothes and like he had his own thing going on. And then my other brother was like more of a deadhead. Um, So he uh, had long hair 
and listen to dead and, um, or Birkenstocks. And like, so he was really cool in his own way. So yeah, I feel like, you know, they kind of taught me what cool was and also music, you know, because my other brother, whatever music he liked, even though I couldn't really get into the dead, I I tried. Um, I'm not really into jam bands, but yeah, whatever they were doing, I just, you know, kind of followed along and then I found my own way into what I thought was cool. But yeah, um, kind of having those, that know-how of like going to a party and being like, Oh yeah, I've already smoked weed. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm down or, you know, um, not, having that be my first time, you know? And so, yeah. So it was really, it was really nice to have that kind of, I mean, my brother became like my kind of guru, I call him because he also got into acid. And so, <laughs> so when I had, when I started getting to that and had questions about that, I could talk to him. So it was a really cool relationship there. Um, and we're still really close. Um, so yeah, so it was cool to have that exposure in a safe place um, under the tutelage of my brother. And, um, you know, my parents found out about this years later and they're like, oh my God. What Did they kind of- never find out about you all using drugs like until like more into adulthood? No. So they knew. So my oldest brother didn't get that into it, um, into hard drugs. Uh, he, but he became a smoker in his late teens and my parents knew, and there's a funny conversation in my book with my dad, um, where I find out that he knows that me and my brother are smoking weed. And you really learn a lot about my dad because he says, so the problem is that we, we, we would actually rather have you <laughs> smoke weed than smoke cigarettes, but weed is actually, no, he called it pot, which I thought was like so dorky. He's like, pot is illegal. So this cause this was 25 years ago. Right. And he's like, so the problem is like, if you get caught with it, like you're in deep shit <laughs> and he's like, so, you know, but health-wise, like we'd actually rather have you smoking weed. So that was a really interesting conversation uh, that says a lot about my dad and my parents and how they were kind of progressive and, you know, open-minded about some things. And so, but but telling me that, I was like, oh, okay. So I have to hide cigarettes from my parents. Uh My parents can't, like, know I'm smoking cigarettes and I have to keep... Uh, smoking weed away from the cops. Like, okay. (laughs) And I just continued on. (laughs) Well, let's jump back to, yeah. So then, yeah, like introduced to raves, you said the guy, the cool quarterback uh, guy. So then, yeah, was he the one that first like invited you to a rave? Yeah. So um, my first rave was January of 1996 and I was 16 and yeah, he was like, Hey, do you want to check out one of these rave parties? And I was like, hell yeah. And I was like, gosh, how am I going to do this? Because like, it's like, they're like all night. So like, well, that's, yeah, I was going to say, cause night. I had been, I didn't, I didn't really get into raves, but I had like, I had like subgroups of friends and one subgroup was like the rave group. And so I would sometimes go along with them, but yeah, you had to like have an excuse for being gone all night. Cause they started like, <laughs> 
Yeah, and I did not have the parents who were like, yeah, sure, go, you know, just come home in the morning. No, those were not. Even though my parents were like kind of laid back about some things, they were definitely wanted to know where we were. So, um, so yeah, but uh, I just did the, I'm sleeping over at Stephanie's house. You know, her parents are home and then I call, you know, call to do the check-in and Stephanie's parent. And then you, you always wanted to find the friends who did have like the, the easier parents. <laughs> the Stephanie did like her parents went to bed really early and they like didn't check up on them. And she had a sister who was like really like boy crazy. Um, so they were just like up on their phones all the time talking to boys and going out and, you know, pretty popular. So, yeah. So we had this whole plan that we would, I would sleep over to Stephanie's house and, um, you know, call my parents to check in and then said goodnight to Stephanie's parents and, you know, got ready and whispering in her room and then, um, snuck out of her house and met the boys down the street. And they picked us up and um, they, we were going to do acid that night. I was going to do acid for the first time and they already had um, the drugs. So I just get in the car and, you know, swallow my little blotter paper and, and then we're off. And how did you feel like, were you excited about, did you know people already that had taken acid? Were you like, okay, I just have to do this because that's what they're doing uh, like, yeah, like what was your, cause again, like, so I was always around, like I was around drugs at an early age and would do drinking smart coke, but for, I never wanted to do anything beyond that. Like I was afraid of losing control, which makes no sense. Cause I would get blackout drunk like every night when I was 15. But in my mind, since that was a slow progression, <laughs> but like that sort of thing, <laughs> like, so yeah, like how were you feeling about like, do you were like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do this. And it's like an initiation or yeah. Did you have fears or like, that's just what you do, I guess. Um, I did not have fears because I knew that that one brother had done it. Um, he had told me and just kind of, you know, in, in conversation, getting stoned with him one night, he had talked about doing acid. So I was like, Oh, okay. This is not completely unfamiliar. I, my favorite musical growing up was hair. And so, <laughs> so, you know, and my, my dad, as it turns out, um, did acid in the sixties and I didn't know about that until later. Until later. Um, but yeah, so I feel like it, so you weren't <laughs> afraid at all. You were just like, this is going to be so awesome. Yeah. I was just like, okay, cool. You know, like, you know, uh, I don't know if, if I knew we were going to do acid. I feel like I did. I feel like that was part of the plan. It was like, we're going to go to a rape. We're going to drop acid. And so it was, you know, really exciting. And I knew what the plan was. So, yeah, so we, we drove, um, and I was just along for the ride. Like, I didn't know that my, you know, my friend had called a hotline to find out directions to the map point. Um, and the map point is where you would go to get the directions to the party. So it was a way to kind of like not draw attention to the space because these were illegal, right? And not have the cops find out. Yeah, because they were like, in my recollection, well, and I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, way different. But yeah, like they would be at like in warehouse, like shut down warehouse, like big, large spaces that yes, like were not, like nobody owned them or was paying to rent them or whatever. It was just sort of like that. So yeah, it was. Yeah, 
they were just like abandoned warehouses. Um, <laughs> and so, so that also was kind of like, Ooh, you know, like the fact that you even know about it to go. Right. Felt yeah. Like- <laughs> I mean, for a teenager, that's just like super exciting. And, you know, you're just like on this treasure hunt and, you know, I'm like with my hot new boyfriend and my friends are in the front and like, and then he's already playing, he was already playing like techno in the car. And I'm like, what is this music? Like, okay, this must be the music that they play at raves. And I'm like, wow, this music is like crazy. It's, you know, like electronic and all these new sounds. So it was all very new and exciting. And then the map point was a donut shop (laughs) on, um, in Oakland. It's like on the border between Oakland and Berkeley on San Pablo Avenue. And so I remember getting to the donut shop and actually in starting to feel, feel different than, you know, what I knew from like weed and, you know, the lights were really bright. The guy behind the counter like looked a little (laughs) warped and the donuts were like, woo, like so pretty. (laughs) And, um, yeah. And then we go over and there's these two kids, um, like sitting in the corner with a cash box. And they're like, hey, guys, like $5, you know, here's the directions to the party. And, um, you know, they look like cool kids. And and it was, it was like only $5. And um, we get back in the car. And I remember we got donuts and I like could not eat the donut. It was like, oh, yeah, yum. And then like eating on acid is like... <laughs> really um unappealing especially something very textural because your just senses are really heightened um and so it's like oh my god i can't even eat this donut and like threw it out the window so yeah so we're back in the car and like back on our adventure and then um and then i think it was only like another five or ten minutes um and then we just were in this like shady area with like yeah all dark warehouses and um we park and we we see a, a warehouse with just like a few kids standing outside. So we're like, okay, that must be it. And so we didn't really, there wasn't really a line. Um, and then the one thing, so we're like waiting out in line, we're like smoking cigarettes, like trying to kind of pretend like we know what's up. <laughs> and um, and I do remember the the base, the thud coming from inside the building. And like that, you know, is kind of like the most like the anticipation, like what is that music coming from inside? So I remember like everyone was in line, but like really, you know, antsy to get in. And then we went in and it was like this new world. Like it was, you know, it was, I remember going down like a dark hallway and just like getting closer and closer to that music. And seeing like kind of lights coming in from that room and people dancing and it wasn't like completely crowded. Um, And it was pretty low production. Like it was not (laughs) what you see now with these like big festivals. Like this was a very, which is why I'm so grateful that I had this experience because it was very like one room, one chill room it was not like there was probably not lots of lasers, not a huge light show. Like it was really just all about getting together, listening to these TJs, dancing and getting high. 
Yeah, can you remember <laughs> like yeah, like the feelings that you had in that room and in that first time, and then I'm guessing that's what brought you back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just remember looking around and being like, "Wow, what is this world?" Like it was like. Disneyland, but for a teenager, you know, like when you go to Disneyland and it's like this magical world and it's like, you want to go do this and that. And so, yeah, like I didn't, I was remember being like, oh my God, I want to do so many things. I want to dance, but I want to see what's over there and like, what's over there. And I want to, so I remember just feeling really antsy and excited. And, um, but also just the music was very just over, like overtook me and I just started dancing. And there were people dancing and there were people dancing and people like kind of walking through and just really starting to feel the music. And this was music I'd never heard before. And, and so loud and the speakers are like giant. So it really is like all, all through your body. You feel it. Plus like by then I was completely crying. Um, so it was like sensory overload, but I felt, you know, very safe and I'm um, excited. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't freaking out or some paranoid. I was a little on the way there. There was kind of that thought in the back of my mind, like, oh, my parents, like they could totally oh, right. catch me like on the way there. But I feel like once I got inside the <laughs> outer space world, um, I like all my anxiety and all that just like melted away. Yeah. Trisha here bringing you a brief interruption to make sure you go check out Blissoma Skincare. It is truly authentic green beauty. Cutting edge chemistry meets traditional herbal knowledge for the best of both worlds. There are so many brands out there that are greenwashed and health washed, whether it's food, skincare, all that stuff, meaning they can just put like made with natural products in there and it, they're advertising at that. And so then you think it's this super clean, well, you know, made brand. And they're just like, oh, it can have like one natural thing in it. Or like, yeah, it had natural things and then we <laughs> did it. Anyway, Blissoma is legit. Their recipes offer a huge range of phytonutrients that benefit every skin need, including sensitivities, painful skin problems, and they create balance within the skin and the body. They're formulated to allow customers to proactively and naturally manage a variety of skin issues, including acne, eczema, sensitivity, stress, aging through the nutrients they contain. One of my favorite products is the free rejuvenating gel cleanser. It was actually named the holy grail of facial cleansers by No More Dirty Looks, which is how I originally got into using clean beauty like over a decade ago. Super cool. Which by the way, if you go to blissoma.com right now, I believe you can get a free sample of the gel cleanser simply by signing up for their newsletter. So go do that. Check out the brand. It is worth it. I swear, whenever I stop using their products and then go back, I'm immediately, immediately like wash my face once, 
put on the products once and my skin looks immediately so much better and so different to the fact that I don't even want to put like my makeup on. I usually use this like tinted moisturizer every day that has sunscreen, but I don't even want to put it on because I'm like in love with what my skin looks like simply from washing it and using the serums and oils from Blissoma. Okay. Blissoma.com. Check them out. The link is in my show notes and feel free to DM me. And of course, talk to the people at Blasoma to get true advice on what to do for your skin. All right, let's get back to the episode. Oh, that was I going to say, that's what I remember. Um, I would go to these sober, or maybe I probably would have some pot food at sometimes. But I think I went to the first thing sober, and I was always really, you know, like, being present to the fear of being judged. Like, and you know, like I'm so, so I'm not thin enough. I'm not this. Oh, I want to dance, but what do I look like dancing? I'm not that good of a dancer. Like all of these things that, that I felt like at those spaces that it really felt like freedom and like being free to dance and not care what I look like as much as if I was at like a regular high school party or something like that. But like, I felt like, yeah, like sort of like safe even that wasn't like really, you know, like, yeah, you're in some like, who are these people? Where are we in this dark? Abandoned? Yeah, I know. It's, but like sort of the safety to be yourself and to right. express yourself. I'm sorry, I cut you off when you were about to say something several times. I know, but, but honestly, I think I was more self-conscious at the high school parties. Yeah, that's what I, yeah. yeah when there was like Same. just drinking or like weed. Um, here, it was like just this other energy and you really could feel that energy. And it was just this like really positive, everyone, it was just very welcoming. And everyone was like, dancing and they're in their space, but they're also like together. It's like hard to explain. But if you've been there, you know, the feeling. And it's just really a collective, you know, energy. And then, um, yeah, so those are my emotions. It was just like, you know, curiosity, um, pleasure, like, you know, excitement, just this like newness and just feeling, yeah, very like my anxiety was like all gone. Um, and then, and then we, yeah. And then we found the chill room. So it was just like the one main dance room, one DJ. Um, and this was when like DJs fun vinyl. Um, and I wasn't really paying attention to the DJ cause it was just all kind of overwhelming. And then my friends like took me over to the chill room. And then, so the chill room are these rooms that are more quiet. Um, The music is lower and the music is not as fast. And it's usually like just more chill music, more of like down tempo, ambient music. And then there'll be like sofas or mattresses. Sometimes they would make them and they would be really beautiful with like lights. And I had went to one chill room once where there were like feathers everywhere. It was like feathers on the, so you would sit down, like all these feathers would like fly. And so, yeah, they made them like really like beautiful and um, relaxing. And that's where there was water and sometimes it would be like fruit. <laughs> it was like this kind of Eden. So I'm guessing like, yeah, it sounds like everything you're describing, it, you were like, what? Like, yeah, you're like in from the first one. Were you like, okay, when can I go again? Or where's the next one? Or like, you know, like, obviously you named your book Raver Girl. 
like did that become like what you identified as after that first one or did it take some time or? Oh, it took some time. Yeah. I mean, that night, you know, and that's essentially how the night was. And then, you know, we left around um, dawn and uh, we got away with it, you know, like parents didn't find out. So it was like a really positive experience. And yes, I mean, I remember on the car ride in the morning, just being like, I need to go back there. Like, I found my happy place. And, you know, so like already kind of scheming, how am I going to do this again? So it, it did, it did take a while. It was, it was a bit of a metamorphosis that happened. Um, cause I had to kind of figure out, okay, how am I going to do this with my parents not knowing? Like, can I talk to my parents about it? And like, kind of trying to see, you know, I had some friends eventually down the line who did have parents who like were cool with it and let them. And I just, my parents were not. Um, so that, that was a big challenge for us. And yeah, but in terms of the, you know, I went to 104 over wow. the course of four years. <laughs> um, wow. And I kept like every other weekend, maybe, or one yeah. time. Yeah, I'm trying to figure it's it out. Like every, <laughs> on average, yeah, on average, like two a month, two, three a month. And then in the summer, I went to more because. Right. It was um, raves on Thursdays. And did you um, always take something, some sort of drug? In the beginning, yes. So um, throughout the book, it's also like a journey through like my drug trajectory. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, you know, I kind of start with weed and um, with that I was like already into. And then this, this, the rave scene in the San Francisco Bay Area, I feel like there was a lot of acid. Um, there was a lot of acid, and then of course you had ecstasy, because ecstasy was like the rave drug. Um, so yeah, so I kind of started with acid, and then tried ecstasy, and then other psychedelics like mushrooms, and then nitrous oxide <laughs> it was really big. You'd, like you'd see that at parties a lot, and then you know, and then you, I mean, it really was like you kind of follow me through the book, like trying each drug and um, my experiences and then kind of getting into the powders. So then cocaine and ketamine. And, um, and do you feel like those, like trying the different drugs was led more by your own curiosity or like, Oh, other people are doing it. So I should do it. Like, was there any, like, sometimes we have, it's all usually internal pressure, but it can feel like external pressure of like wanting to fit in, wanting to know what that experience is. Or was it, you know, it probably maybe a mix of both, like I said, curiosity and like, oh, okay, this is what we do now. Or yeah. I mean, I think, um, my personality, I'm experimental. Like I'm an experimental person. I, I mean, you could read my book and argue that I was addicted but I actually kind of jumped around and I, when I kind of catch myself really getting addicted at the end, I do catch myself and change direction. Um, so I think it was more me having an experimental personality, um, me um, feeling like I always kind of had this safe place I could come home to, like having that family actually, you know, I knew if, if things got really bad, I knew someone would bail me out, you know? And so I could kind of be really push the boundaries and, you know, it's kind of an interesting concept. 
But yes, and if I hadn't found raves, sometimes I wonder if I hadn't found raves, would I have tried, you know, all those drugs? Like if it was just like a house party, like a high school house party. And I probably would have. Yeah. Cause I think that was just, That's just your personality, my personality and, um, my friends and, but no one was really like pushing it on me. Like you'll, there was, there's one chapter in the book where there is the peer pressure does come on really hard with cocaine. But other times I was like the pusher. <laughs> I was the one who's like, let's take another one. So yeah. So I, uh, I think it was a combination of all of them and some, some personality, you know, some people have that personality, some don't. And what did, so you said over four years, so that's probably taking you into, or did you like, yeah, after high school ended in while you're going through high school too. Cause I was like talking about this, like, yeah, did you have any ideas of like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life or like, okay, I'm definitely going to college. And then like, yeah, like what happens after high school ends? So, um, so midway through my junior year, I was still raving every weekend. I mean, I was like officially rave a girl. Like I had the whole get up. I had the mixtapes. Like by then I was like, knew some DJs and knew who was throwing the party. So like really getting, you know, feeling like I'm, I've arrived in the scene. Then I wanted to drop out of school. So I had a boyfriend who was like my raver boyfriend and he, he pretty much dropped out and was getting his GED. And I was like, Oh, I was like, I didn't know you could do that. And I, here I am like, um, really, you know, really kind of bored in high school and I had this other life and that was more exciting. And I was like, I want to drop out of high school. And, uh, I was like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to finish. Maybe if I could just do that, I'll just do that. And so I, I told my parents, I was like, I don't want to go back to school. And they were like, uh, what do you mean? I was like, I'm done. Like I, I heard about this thing called the GED. I could just take this test and, um, you know, maybe work a bit and then go to, go to college. And my parents were like, um, no, <laughs> they were like, so neither of my parents graduated or went to college. My mom did later in life. So my parents didn't have the opportunity to go to college. So they were very set on their children going to college because they had created savings and everything, college savings for me and my brother's. So when I, when I said I wanted to get my GED, I mean, you can go to college with your GED, but they were just concerned that I wouldn't, I was just getting off track and I like, wouldn't be able to go to like the colleges that I wanted to go to. And it would just be kind of a rougher road. And they just had that dream for us, which is a great dream. <laughs> Um, you know, and no, I had the same, my parents, I say like the only thing I ever did for my parents was get a college degree. Cause they were like, so like, no, you get a degree. It doesn't matter what it's in. And it was interesting because my sister was recently in town and like, she has a 16 year old girl now and an 18 year old that started, just started college. And I was like thinking like, yeah, I wonder if my parents hadn't forced me to go to college. I don't wonder what my life, like, I don't think it would have been 
like I was actually like happy that they forced me to go to college, even though I didn't need a degree. I ended up becoming a live, I wanted to become a live sound engineer. I got a degree in live sound. Like it was like, it doesn't even like make sense for my degree, but just the steps that my life took because I was like, well, fine, I'll get the degree, but I'll do it my way. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't really like, I didn't go to college for writing. Like I didn't have an English degree. Like I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer until later. Um, yeah, but they really instilled that and they were like, you know, we didn't have this and they just, they were like, it'll just create these opportunities for you. And we want you to have opportunities. And like, that's kind of what it came down to. So when I wanted to drop out, they were like, no, they're like, okay, let's figure this out. And, um, it's really interesting how we figured it out together. Cause this was like midway through junior year and not a lot of schools will like take you midway through the year unless you've like moved and, you know, so yeah, so I was out of school for like, I think like two months or something while they tried to figure out what I was going to do. Cause I was like protesting. I was like, I'm not going. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's when like we started to do all, we done a lot of testing, psychological testing and like all this, cause they wanted trying to find out what was wrong with me. Because of why you didn't want to go to school. Yeah. Because like why all of a sudden, like I just, you know, gave up on school. And, and meanwhile, on the weekends, I was still raving. And oh, I had to kind of take a break then because I knew that they were like, I was like under their microscope. Um, and sometimes those like forced breaks were like actually really good. Because then I could like detox. Like I didn't see it that way at the time. I was just like planning my outfits and like, you know, <laughs> um, but in retrospect, like, yeah, those were healthy. So yeah, so then they, they found a school that would accept me and it was, it was called a continuation school. Um, and it was a really small private school that accepted these kids that kind of were also like having some issues. <laughs> and, um, then I also did the psychological testing. I was already seeing a therapist at that time. I was like seeing my therapist more. So my parents were really trying to like, create support however they could. And again, like this was, I, I was privileged. Like they were able to have the money to help me um, have the therapy. And luckily now therapy is a lot more affordable, but yeah. And like the testing and stuff like, yes, all that, you know, costs money. And um, so with the testing, uh, it did reveal. And at that time too, they still have no idea. Like you're going to raves and parties. So like, no. And like, I think they knew they like, I think by then, and we talked, we talked about this when I was older, when I started writing the book and I was like, how much did you guys know? You know? Cause like I went to, like, I had like a, you know, a, an alternate life, um, secret life. And they were like, well, we knew something was going on, but you came home every Sunday for dinner. And there was a couple times where I didn't, and I like got in trouble for it. And I kept my grades up. So like they're back to kind of this emphasis on education in school. Their whole thing was as long as you maintain a B average, like you're, we're good. And so I did, I was, I was able to maintain that B average um, up until about when I wanted to drop out. Cause then I just like started to give up a bit. It's interesting to me. You're in those spots of like, okay, you're like, I'm not going to go to, to the to high school anymore. Let's drop off your parents. Like, okay, let's really look into this and the psychological testing. 
And what were you just saying? Like, you know, like, and if they didn't, you said, yeah, like they don't really know what's going on, but they maybe do. Like, you're, are you just like, when you're saying like, I don't want to go to high school, just like, it's not worth it. Do you have like, oh, I'm just going to be at like, are you telling them what you're going to be or do with your life or something or? No, I was pretty lost. Okay. Pretty lost. Also, you're going to therapist too. So it's sort of. It's kind of a cry for help. I was okay. like. I was like, this is, you know, I, and I, I was, I was doing crystal meth on the weekends at this point. So okay, I think so you re- aren't only, I'm imagining you're only using drugs when you're going to raves. And so oh, no, no, like, and that was at raves. Yes. No, during the week I didn't use. Got it. But so there was like a weekend Getting to more dangerous drugs that can Yes, really getting into the here. heavier drugs. And I think that just like put me in a depression. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I was in a depression when I talked to my therapist, who is actually still my therapist. Wow. The time, she's like, you were depressed. Like, nothing would have made me happy, probably. So I was just, like, giving up, you know? Um, so the, the drugs and all the accumulation of everything, the sleep deprivation, it was all just really, you know, coming to a head. Yeah. So on one hand, the raves are, like, somewhat what you're living for. Like they give you life and probably like your identity in many ways and you have fun. But then also because when you're at them and you're taking these drugs that feel great at the time, but then are probably adding to the depression. Is it sort of like you're living for these things that are also somewhat like making you more depressed, but you don't. Know yeah. Because I just I got into like the self destruction mode and, you know, because I was getting into the harder drugs and um, I started like, the raves had kind of lost their luster. Like we were kind of going and it was just more habitual. And I like, wasn't even like making new friends at that point. And so we were starting to get like clicky and kind of nasty. And um, this is where it kind of takes like the dark turn. Yeah. So where did you, yeah. Like what made you find like start, did you start slowly stop going and did you get into anything new? Like, yeah. And you we get to like, I asked about your call, like going to college and you said your parents forced you like, yeah. Like, did you end up like, yeah, like where, like, let's go more, get a little bit into adulthood. Yeah. So I, um, I had a really, I had like a near death experience, um, as Raver Girl and that really scared me. Like that can, yeah, that can change your direction. Yeah. So that made me realize like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? Like, what did I just almost do? You know, I almost just killed me and my friends. And so that was like big, the catalyst. And then I, from that realized I'm just going to stop crystal meth. Like this is like a bad drug. I'm going to like not hang out with these toxic people. Um, I, but I still went to raves. I was like, I'm going to still go to raves, but I'm actually going to be that person who like only smokes weed, goes to dance and see my friends. And once in a while I would do like a hit of E because yeah, by then I'd had a bad acid trip and I had, I've been in a K hole. Like I had been like, had so many like scary experiences. I just kind of was like, but I still want to go to raves. So I turned into that like seasoned raver who would go and just go until like 2am until I got tired and go home and go to bed. And that's how I went to 104 because I kind of finished off high school at this new school and was still a raver. I got more into um, graffiti culture, hip hop, like that really kind of actually took over the rave scene towards the end of the nineties, hip hop acts started coming in. And so, yeah, so I did kind of have a new interest, although that also was at raves. And, um, and then I've kind of got excited about college 
and the future. You and actually got excited about college and the future. Did, did it have, did did it have like a passion or something? Or you just... Yeah, I well, I was really into fashion. And that kind of circled back, you know, kind of my passions came, came back. Like once I wasn't, I was, I was out of the fog and out of the depression, you know, I got excited about music and fashion. And then this like world of graffiti was like really interesting. And I had always been obsessed with New York and like wanted to, you know, maybe go to college in New York. And I ended up going to college, to FIT in New York, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology. So it was like a full circle, <laughs> but not really a, a you know a circle. It was like well, once you moved to like New York, then were you sort of like is like you're in a whole new space and a whole new world. Like were you then like too? Were you able to like okay like let me see like what's new here? Like did a part of you be like oh I need to find rave scene here? Were you just like all right this is my new chapter? Yeah, it was my new chapter, but also the rave scene was really kind of dying down. I was wondering, um, yeah. yeah like around 2000, um, the you know, government and the police were like really cracking down on it. Um, so the scene kind of like imploded a bit. And then there was more, it was in the news more, there were more deaths and like, it was just getting like really, and because of what I've been through, I was just like, no, I'm going to like, I'm going to actually like just drink, you know, Cosmopolitan and be like Carrie Bradshaw and like go to clubs. Well, that's what I was like, yeah, then you moved to New York and you're like, okay, then there's these clubs. Like I have to just drink. Um, (laughs) Like normal. And did you end up sticking with like FIT? Yeah. Yeah. I graduated from FIT. um, And I stayed in New York and worked um, for a bit. In the fashion industry? Right after 9-11. So it was a tough oh, time to to graduate. The economy was, you know, really struggling. Um, but I I worked in advertising for a few years because I was drawn to creative fields. I either wanted to work magazine publishing or advertising. There were like no jobs because of nine eleven. So I worked in advertising, um, and it was fun. Uh, but again, it was like, yeah, it was kind of with these creative people who were like, you know, kind of daring. And um, so kind of just always attracted to that, you know, um, where the party people are. Um, and when did you start to go into writing or was there another step between that? I mean, I know in advertising, writing is part of it, but I'm guessing that's not necessarily where you No, because I, I realized that I was um, not not probably in the right department in advertising because I wasn't in the, I wasn't a copywriter. Like I wasn't in our creative director. I was on the account side. And so I kind of, and that's like who deals with the clients. So I learned a lot um, and had a lot of fun. There were like great holiday parties, like office (laughs) parties. And I was like Mad Men, um, you know, 3.0. And, um, yeah, but then, and I'm, you know, that's just New York. And by then I'd been in New York like five, six years. And I actually moved back to California. I was done with the cold winters. I always knew I was going to move back to California. Like I'm a California girl. Um, and so I kind of took that chance to reevaluate yet again, move back. And I moved to San Francisco. And, um, and then that's where I landed at Pop Sugar um, when they were starting off. And I was the fashion editor there Um, and they were just starting off. And uh, that's where I really discovered I enjoyed writing. 
So, yeah. And when you got hired, did you get hired? So fashion, got it. So you got hired as fashion editor. You have the fashion background, whatever. But yeah, so fashion editor is you're writing or you're also in charge of like curate, curating what like articles. Right. So I was, um, yeah, I was in charge of writing. At first it was just me writing. And then as the company grew, we hired, I had a team. So I had a team of writers and managed them. And we just really helped um, build the voice of Pop Sugar's fashion channel. Because Pop Sugar at the time had like, well, they still, they were like celebrity and fashion beauty. So I was in charge of the fashion and yeah, it was great. I was really in my element there because I was writing about, you know, fashion, what I loved and, but I was also just writing. And that was really where I discovered, wow, I actually just really love writing for a living. Did you ever think that, yeah, like back then when you like, where did you start to get the idea of like, maybe I'll write a book one day or like, you know, no, I had no, like, yeah, like <laughs> where did that start percolating? And then like, yeah, the idea of like now to like write the story of going back to raver girl. Cause it's not like a memoir of your entire life, right? <laughs> My entire life is not that interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, the no, I was just enjoying developing my writing skills and just writing about something I loved. Um, and then I left Pop Sugar to actually write about other areas. So I wanted to try food writing and see if I could write about food and fitness. And so that's when I kind of became a lifestyle writer, which is like what I am now. And I wanted to see if I could actually write about other stuff. I was like, am I just a fashion writer? Or like, right, am I good at that? Because I was interested in fashion and have a right. FIT. And so that makes sense. But so I kind of wanted the challenge and wanted to see like if I had the writing chops, um, trying about other areas um, I was interested in. And yeah, and I did. I was a freelance writer. Um, and then I still would write for fashion as well. Um, but then I didn't have, but no, I never thought I was going to write a book. I, that was like never an ambition. Um, it was really, you know, kind of a lofty, I was like, I don't know, I don't have any ideas. And then I had like the light bulb moment <laughs> about eight years ago, uh, when I was actually just with some girlfriends, I was living in, I had moved to Southern California, um, then, and I was just telling some girlfriends, one of my craver, craver, crazy raver stories and about when I had a bad acid trip. And I realized, wow, I've got a lot of these, you know, crazy stories. And, and then I was like, I wonder if any, you know, what, what raver books are there out there? Who's, who, what women have written their stories? And I saw that no women had written about their experiences raving. That was from what I could find. And all the books about raving were about the music or the drug culture. And they were mostly written by men. And so they're great books and I, you know, I read them and used them as resources, but there was no like coming of age story about what it was actually like for us, like day to day and how we, how we maneuvered and what the experiences were and the friendships and, and the drugs. And so I got to work. So. <laughs> so that was like the telling one of the stories, just remembering experience and sharing it with a friend and then like their response initiated like, oh. I have a more of these. I want to share these. Yes. And then I actually was able to get to writing because I had lots of memorabilia um, from the time. You know, I had photos, I had journals. Um, and one thing I actually didn't mention was at one point, 
and raving, I started bringing around a tape recorder with me. Oh, wow. Like a little dictaphone. Like I have like these uh-huh. guys. <laughs> so yeah. So I started bringing that around with me and I would like interview people. And so I had these tapes oh. still that I was always afraid my parents were going to find. <laughs> they were like locked away. And I was like, oh, let me go get those tapes. It locked away at my parents' house and listen to them. And maybe they'll help me write this book. And they really did. And they're hilarious and embarrassing. <laughs> That's so amazing that you had journals and, yeah, the audio tapes and stuff to come back on. So, so now it's just now out. Congratulations. Yes, yes. Thank you. In this process, too, were you just sort of like, okay, great. I wrote this book about this experience. Did any part of you feel like, oh, I want to write more books? Or just like, I'm so, wow, I did this thing. And like, you um, know, like. I think I'm still just, wow, I did this thing. <laughs> which, yes, um, you're very much in the thing. But like, I mean, you yeah. never thought about writing a book. And then like, okay, whoa, I have this experience. I wonder if it all of a sudden at least unleashed like, <gasps> I have, I can do more than like, (laughs) I mean, I always have lots more creative ideas. I don't know if it's going to be another book. Um, Maybe I've had like some, you know, fun book ideas, but oh, it's such a beast. Like it took eight years. I don't think it would take eight years again. I don't think it it wouldn't be memoir. It would be fiction. Um, So I don't know. Or it might just be like a new creative enterprise, you know? (laughs) So I'm thinking it'll just come to me and turn it into a, or <laughs> a TV series. Turn Raver Girl into a TV. Well, yes, that has not <laughs> been done either. So that's I'm like these kind of especially like memoirs on a like short term. I'm like immediately like, oh, this could be a. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be a great Netflix series. Yeah, so, um, let's put that out yeah. in the world. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. All right, I know you need to go. I'm just gonna ask you one of the final questions I ask everybody, which is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I feel like so often. Often we put like our feelings of I'll be enough when I'll be successful when I'll be fulfilled when outside of ourselves. But really, we can when you're constantly chasing it, you won't really feel that even when you reach those goal marks. And I feel you can claim the feelings you're seeking at any time. What are you claiming for yourself right now? I'm claiming accomplishment. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank so excited you. about your book and your future Netflix series that I'm already championing. <laughs> championing over here, but I'll thank let you get through the so book much. promotion. <laughs> thank you so much. It was really fun. It was great talking to you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. For more into her story, go buy the book, Raver Girl. You can find her, Raver Girl, the book on social media. Uh, for full show notes, go to yourjoyologist.com slash podcast, and you'll find all the episodes there. All things me. You can go to trishahuffman.com, yourjoyologist.com. I'm at underscore Trisha Huffman on social media, and I've also got Claim It Podcast just for the podcast and at yourjoyologist for the product line. Are you buying products for gifts? Seriously, I'm not joking. They do make the best gifts. There's magnets, there's keychains, there's the insulated mugs and tumblers, which are only here for a limited time. Journals, go check them out. Definitely check out Blissoma, blissoma.com and their amazing skincare line. Uh, All right. Again, thank you for listening. Subscribe, leave a review. If you leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me, podcast at yourjoyologist.com. And um, for the final thought, what are you doing right now to up your joy levels? What are you going to do?
to up your joy levels.